I once lived near a large urban park, and as a consequence, I inherited a family of raccoons living under my cottage. One night, I found the light in the crawl space beneath the cottage was on, then off, then on again. At first, I thought it might be a homeless person, but then I heard the chittering of young raccoons. Apparently, the young raccoons were pulling on a very long string that turned on and off a naked incandescent bulb. Funny thing, raccoons are blind in the light, so they were effectively creating a denial-of-service attack upon themselves. The next day, I cut the string. There's a parallel here to IoT light bulbs that change colors. In 2013, researcher Nitesh Danjani found that a popular brand used simple MD5 hashes of the device's MAC addresses for authentication. Problem is, MAC addresses are not great for authentication. It's like using a hash of your street address as the password for your front door. So he queued up some hashed MAC addresses and wrote a simple script. In a YouTube video, he shares the night he dosed his entire apartment into darkness and is surprised that it stayed dark until he killed the program. The Internet of Things presents us with both convenience and inconvenience at the same time. Suddenly, everything is smart, is hackable again, with startups sometimes repeating security mistakes made decades ago in their rush to market with cool new toys. The question is, who is hacking the Internet of Things today, and how does one even get started? Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about hacking IoT devices. Specifically, what are the IoT threat models? What are the IoT technologies being used? And what then are the tools and knowledge that you need to get started hacking IoT devices? So far on The Hacker Mind, I've talked about capture the flag, bug bounties, and how to become a pen tester. I've even talked about how to pick locks. But we haven't talked much about hacking the Internet of Things. As I produce this episode, I have a Bluetooth-enabled coffee mug that uses an app to regulate its temperature. Undoubtedly, you have Bluetooth or other enabled devices in your life as well. To learn more about common threats facing these IoT devices and how to create a framework for it, I turn to two experts. My name is Bo Woods. I'm a cyber safety advocate with I Am The Cavalry. So I'm Paulino Calderon. I'm a senior application security consultant with WebSec. Bo and Paulino are two of the five authors of Practical IoT Hacking, the definitive guide to attacking the Internet of Things, a new book from No Starch Press available from Amazon and other fine booksellers. It's a comprehensive book, and it's an important topic. The book reminds us that besides worrying about someone randomly crashing our power grid, maybe we should also consider that someone could remotely crash our insulin pumps, pacemakers, even our coffee mugs. A lot of people don't understand why you would teach people to hack devices that could cause harm. And we want to show the extent to which we care about not causing harm and not inadvertently equipping criminals or not inadvertently equipping other people whose motivation and goal is to hurt other people. So uh, in the book, 
we have a whole chapter dedicated to safely and lawfully conducting security research. We have a chapter on threat modeling so that researchers will know the potential harms that they could cause. We have a chapter on an IoT methodology so that they can have tried, proven mechanisms to conduct security research. And we've got a chapter that talks about how to defend organizations, defend enterprises from their IoT. Before we get too far, we really should take a step back and define IoT. When I started writing my first book, When Gadgets Betray Us, IoT was still known as hardware hacking or embedded security. That's because early IoT systems consisted mostly of dumb sensors on embedded systems out in the field. They had very few onboard resources and were typically bundled with a lot of old communications protocols. Gradually, the devices got smarter and their numbers increased exponentially. So what do you call it when every dumb thing we have now starts communicating over the internet? Cisco tried real hard to make the internet of everything or IOE stick. It didn't. So we settled upon the Internet of Things, or simply IoT. I think everyone defines the Internet of Things differently. Um, for some people, for instance, a router might be Internet of Things. For other people, it might not be. It might be considered network infrastructure. Uh, for some people, a car might be Internet of Things. For other people, that's an industrial application of the Internet of Things. For some people, uh, a power plant might have IoT devices. For others, they might consider that industrial IoT or operational technology. Uh, so everybody kind of has their own definition, um, but the one that I tend to use as a working definition uh, is anything that has computing power, connectivity, and a physical capability, kinetic capability. It's kind of like what happened with the term hacking, right? Everyone is still fighting over it. So yeah, I don't dwell too much on it, but uh, I guess I consider IoT any device that could um, store information and be accessible either remote or internet-based. And uh, that should be, it should be considered in our infrastructure and the needs that we have, we need to protect them as well. So we have IoT sensors out in the field that utilities use, and we have consumer IoT in the home. In addition to a smart coffee mug, there's a smart IoT-enabled toothbrush, for example. I mean, a toothbrush is a stick with bristles. Do we really need that to communicate with the cloud? Yeah, I think eventually anything that has electricity will have computing power. Uh, and even some things that don't have electricity today will have computing power. So there are, for instance, uh, IoT water bottles, things that just hold water, um, but that you can use to track uh, how much you drink or how full it is so that you can know to refill it or how cold or hot it is. So you can know, you know, uh, if your, your soup is getting too cold or, you know, whatever you're doing. So. By that definition, IoT still could be the internet of everything, I guess. But we're a long way past the naming of all of this. Quite simply, IoT means anything that communicates with something else. If you think about the overall system within which some of these devices live, there has to be storage somewhere. So even sensors end up sending their data someplace that has to be stored. And that might be in the cloud, for instance. 
which is increasingly a part of the Internet of Things. Um, it's just another node to which those sensors or those physical devices can connect to get computing instructions, to deliver data, uh, to give people a sense of power control or to accept commands from outside. The authors worked mainly with home IoT and not necessarily with larger IoT systems, mostly because they want to get people started with hacking IoT. Most of us don't have access to industrial systems, at least I don't. Yeah, I think almost all of the research that we did for this book and published in this book is home-based IoT devices. Um, part of the reason for that is they're more accessible, uh, but uh, some of our writers and researchers actually have access to the higher-end, more expensive industrial IoT or medical IoT devices. We chose not to write too much about those um, because they're not as broadly applicable and because some of the consequences of failure for those uh, are higher than the threshold that we wanted to necessarily equip and enable people uh, to be able to rush out and do if they have um, a low level of experience, a low level of maturity in working with and testing those devices. That's a good point. With IoT hacking, we want to make positive contributions to the security of our internet connected things. Yeah, in the book, we go through great pains to make sure that security researchers can safely and lawfully test these devices. Uh, now, while laws differ in every country, um, the ones that uh, we, we tended to focus on were U.S. laws, because uh, that's where many of the security researchers do their work, um, or other countries that will have laws that are similar to U.S. laws. And so we actually had a couple of expert outside contributors come in and talk about uh, two in particular, the DMCA or Digital Millennium Copyright Act and the CFAA or Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which are the two primary vehicles that uh, security researchers might get trapped in accidentally uh, if they don't know how to effectively, safely, and lawfully conduct some of their security investigations. So Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is the most common law in the US used to uh, arrest and prosecute criminal actors under computer crimes laws. Um, and that one basically says that if you exceed authorized access and tamper with a computing system, uh, you may face criminal penalties. Uh, this is a law that was written in 1980s um, and that has not fully kept pace with the time. Although CFAA is old, there have been recent efforts to update it. There are some efforts to reform that law, to change it, to improve it so that it doesn't inadvertently capture security researchers. In the U.S., the Department of Justice has published guidance for prosecutors so that they don't inadvertently capture good faith security researchers. And that's kind of a, a, lanch, uh, a landslide, a watershed moment for uh, what we do is to have the Department of Justice recognize the value and utility of security research. The second law we talk about is the Digital Millennium Copyright or DMCA. Now, the DMCA was written in the 1990s and updated in the early 2000s, I believe. Uh, and it's meant to prevent pirating of DVDs and other media. Um, but in writing it, it inadvertently 
or maybe overtly, I don't remember, captured uh, reverse engineering software that has some protection mechanism in it. And without getting into the details, uh, if you have to overcome a security barrier and if you have to reverse engineer a security protocol, then you may get uh, caught in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which exposes you to criminal as well as civil penalties. Unlike CFAA, DMCA has a built-in trigger to make exemptions every three years. The DMCA is up for uh, renewal of its exemptions every three years in the U.S. So 2021 is one of those years. And uh, many security researchers, many companies, uh, the Department of Justice have submitted letters to the Librarian of Congress who manages those exemptions. And the hope is that we will continue expanding on the exemptions that have been granted for good faith security research. So in 2015, we got some narrow exemptions for medical devices, cars, and voting machines. In 2018, we got some broader exemptions um, for all, all devices, all types of devices. And the hope is that in 2021, uh, we'll get more expansive exemptions that apply to more types of devices and that reduce the potential chilling effect that would stop researchers working on security research in the U.S. Uh, because of fears of DMCA violations. And even when we wrote the book, it got tricky because uh, some of the cool findings that we had couldn't be mentioned in the book. So we had to, you know, work on open source boards and come up, use open source laboratories instead of doing real life examples. The book Practical Hacking is full of useful examples. And it's not just stories from the authors themselves. We brought in a number of expert contributors like Dr. Marie Moe, uh, who is a security researcher, but also a pacemaker patient. And we wanted to bring those voices in to be able to, to say why it's both critical that we do this security research, but equally critical that we do it in a way that doesn't inadvertently cause harm or cause potential harm. And that's something that's really, really important to us. So it stands to reason that basically anything IoT can be attacked. Yeah, and, and at the end, everything matters as far as for, uh, for attackers. Like uh, if it's in the attack surface it, uh, and they can, it can be abused, like it doesn't matter if it's, you know, in transit, stored somewhere or inside the device, um, it's still a threat. This raises an interesting point, the storage of information. Early embedded systems only reported back the conditions it observed. IoT devices today can interact more and make automated adjustments on the fly. Now IoT is starting to sound less like a sensor and more like a traditional computer. So what then makes IoT hacking different from, say, traditional network hacking? IoT is, is interesting, and especially some of the, the aspects that uh, you can get into with the Internet of Things. Um, there's several differences between IoT and traditional computer systems. So you can have different consequences. You know, often the consequence of failure in an IoT device might be human life or public safety outcomes in medical devices, cars, trains, airplanes. Um, you have different adversaries. So because of the consequences, some adversaries will run away from IoT. Some adversaries will run towards IoT 
and see that as a way for them to increase profitability or serve their other goals. For example, let's say you're a large retail organization with a number of physical locations. Perhaps you want a centralized and remote way to regulate the temperature of each store. You want to automate the HVAC system for remote access. That's what happened with the Target breach in December 2013. Someone found a vulnerability in third-party HVAC system, then used that to laterally move on to the corporate network and find the credit card information. Is that a traditional networking attack, or is that an IoT attack? I would think pure IoT attacks would be different. Uh, you have different types of components, uh, you know, uh, small, tiny chips that may run uh, an ARM core versus an Intel 86. Uh, you may have many different types of things digitally in, in some of the chips that are on there, which provide additional capabilities as well as limited power um, or a limited processing capability. Uh, high battery drain, for instance, is a, an issue if you're trying to do certain types of attacks. So our approach to IoT security should be different from traditional computing. We think about replacing our computers every four years or so. With IoT, the devices are designed to run on timescales that are measured in years, if not decades. So IoT devices will live out in the wild for decades or more. Um, we're just seeing some of the early edges of some of those adoption curves that will, will take us for you know, 5, 10, 15 years uh, or more in some industries. Uh, and at the same time, the consequences happen in real time. So uh, when an IoT device starts misbehaving, you can have harm that happens in milliseconds rather than months, as with like financial theft or some other things. Since most IoT devices are smaller with limited resources, you can at least disable them fairly quickly for dramatic effect with a simple denial of service attack, like those light bulbs I talked about earlier. So with the IoT attack surface being greater and the technology being somewhat different from traditional computing, how do you get started hacking IoT? I mean, I have this Kali box that I use for network systems. Can I use that to attack an IoT system? I'd say um, start with what's most familiar, most comfortable to you. So if you already have a background in network testing, that might be the place to start. If you have a background in web application security, maybe you start with the web components, web interface. I mentioned the Tesh Dajani at the top of the podcast. He also looked at baby monitors and one had this persistence. It seemed that once you authenticated through the local network, the app maintained that access even if you were halfway across the world. I suppose that's a good idea if you travel a lot and want to keep tabs on things back home. But it's also a bad idea in that someone outside the family could gain access to the live audio and video stream, perhaps overhearing private conversations between the parents. So is this a feature or is this a bug? And then there's this other example, the strange case of someone hacking into a casino's fish tank, which is something right out of Ocean's Eleven. It's never been done before. What's the target? When was the last time you were in Vegas? You want to knock over a casino. Right. So this unnamed North American casino had a massive fish tank in its lobby, and someone used that to get access to the casino's corporate network. Kind of like the target breach. Kind of brilliant, actually. But still, the target breach, the baby monitor, the fish tank, these are all basically network attacks enabled by poorly configured IoT devices. 
For true IoT hacking, I'm thinking you're going to need a bit more than a Kali Linux box on your side. Yeah, and as far as tooling goes, since you mentioned Kali, I think it, it can get you started on the software aspect of it, but then there's also the hardware side. And then for that, you might need some additional tools or hardware to interact with that. Right. Remember, I said all this started out as being called hardware hacking or embedded security. Unlike a traditional Windows box with its predictable, almost vanilla chipsets and operating system, the Internet of Things uses a variety of chipsets, each with their own runtime operating system, or RTOS. RTOS is firmware on the chip itself. In some cases, the RTOSs simply don't have the resources to be updated. They're designed to be obsolete at some point in time. One of the, the characteristics of the Internet of Things is it's got all of these different components. There's many, many different gateways to get into testing uh, the Internet of Things devices, IoT devices. And so it, it opens up the possibility for people to engage in multiple different places. And at the same time, because it has all those different aspects, there's going to be something that you don't already know, which can be intimidating and can uh, cause people to delay. I will always start with a simple thread model of the components, as you said, like very simple and get you to understand how the information is flowing between them and where to focus your attention, like where it might be more worthwhile. Threat models are the most basic way to plan your defense. You need to identify where the attacks are most likely to target and how well you've secured those targets. With corporate networks, there used to be common points of entry. So your corporate IT would spend heavily to defend what used to be considered the perimeter. With the proliferation of mobile devices, the perimeter became porous, then non-existent. The threats today can now come from a variety of places, even that coffee mug. The nature of the threats that you may encounter might be very different. So if you're looking at a, a typical uh, enterprise network, uh, enterprise endpoint device, then your primary threats are going to be around confidentiality of data. Those are going to be the most severe threats that you tend to look at or severe risks that you tend to look at. Bo's talking about something known as the CIA triad in security. With confidentiality, that's the C, you have to ask, can you keep the data confidential? There's integrity, that's the I, which means the data hasn't been compromised in transit or at rest. And availability, that's the A, which means the data is always available. Whereas with Internet of Things devices, uh, availability is much more of an issue. So if you've got a, a medical device that's keeping a patient alive, if that device goes offline, then the patient can also go offline. Um, at the same time, um, integrity attacks are much more severe in the Internet of Things. So... Uh, using an example of a car, if you can cause a car to turn left all of a sudden, that's an integrity attack that can cause really severe damage to the person. Whereas confidentiality doesn't always lead to those types of outcomes. And in fact, it almost never leads to loss of life type of outcomes, uh, except when that data is taken and used later by someone else. Um, one of the, the, potentially morbid jokes that I sometimes make is, I love my privacy, but I want to be alive to enjoy it. Yo, know, well, as, as far as just the exercise or the thread modeling thing, um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't 
think about that is too different um, because at the end of the day, you're just identifying components and data flows and just keeping it on the technical side. Um, I think if you're already doing thread modeling with applications, you can do a very solid work with, uh, an, with an IoT device. Good point. If you're already doing threat modeling, then you should be able to incorporate the IoT attack surface. One of the considerations in IoT is uh, power consumption, both in terms of battery life as well as processing power. So in some cases, you don't have the ability to have really strong cryptography when you're communicating. Or in some cases, you may need to uh, have a custom or special purpose protocol that gets used for sending data back and forth um, interoperably. And often that defaults to the lowest common denominator. This is really the problem with IoT, the appeal to the lowest common denominator. Device manufacturers, particularly startups, are reaching for what already exists rather than designing something new in part because they want their cool new toothbrush to incorporate with what's already out there today. That's both good and bad. You want quick and easy adoption, so using existing technology makes sense. But if your IoT device is using really old communications protocols, but in a new way, then that creates some interesting new security challenges. In IoT and various flavors of IoT, you tend to see uh, some unusual or uncommon protocols even some really old protocols that are still being used, as well as some newly invented ones that have, uh, in some cases, fairly good security models, and in other cases, fairly poor security models, which allow you to start breaking them more quickly, um, intercepting, replaying, uh, middling some of those attacks. Uh, so it, it gives you a lot of fertile ground to work on as compared with the mostly uh, heavily encrypted SSL TLS web components that a lot of uh, websites and apps use. A few years ago, I was at another fuzz testing company and I created a report based on what they were seeing in the protocol space. One of the open source protocols that crashed most often was BusyBox. What could happen with a vulnerability in BusyBox? In 2016, the Mirai botnet contributed to a massive denial of service attack that brought parts of the internet to a standstill. What was remarkable was that Mirai was constructed from thousands of Internet of Things devices, namely surveillance cameras. A BusyBox flaw within the firmware of a chip used across the industry allowed an attacker to leverage the small but numerous resources of those Internet-connected cameras. Mirai was used to take down one of the larger content delivery networks, DIN. So, for an afternoon one August, Netflix, Twitter, and other resources were down because the CDN was down because thousands of zombie cameras contributed to the denial of service attack. This attack is a hint of what might lie ahead with the billions of IoT devices we have today. To get an idea of the problem, you can use Shodan to query how many devices use older versions of BusyBox or any other popular protocol such as message queuing telemetry transport or MQTT for that matter. As I said, fuzz testing shows that some of these older protocols, yeah, I'm looking at you, MQTT, yes, you, didn't perform so well. Part of it is that MQTT was developed in 1999 and was not used much in the past. Now it's being called upon to do more than it was intended. 
Suddenly, everyone's got to have MQTT because it provides lightweight communications. So why aren't more people banging on it? Right, lowest common denominator. Uh, and in some cases, we have better protocols. You know, if you look at some of the, the more modern um, home IoT-based protocols, those are starting to mature. Uh, but some of the older protocols, which many devices will speak by default as, again, a kind of a, a lowest common syntax, um, those have much less security, much many fewer capabilities and, and architectural um, stability built into them. But again, it's, it's the lowest common denominator. It's like web 1.0, right? Just basic HTML. Every browser can support it. They support it almost identically. And so you can always fall back to that. Something similar is happening with new protocols. They haven't been tested much either. That, that's one of the challenges that you actually face. Since you're dealing with the new protocols, like you said, sometimes even the tooling isn't there. The techniques are not really... A lot of developers or a lot of security researchers haven't really had a chance to look into these new technologies. And there's a lot to be explored in that area. So there's a huge opportunity to, to create new security research um, tools or just techniques. And, and, and as you said, some of the things are already, already existed back then. And simple things like intercepting traffic, or we already knew that traffic shouldn't you know, travel, uh, transit in plain text. But some of these newer technologies are going back to that mistake, right? Um, and, and as far as um, when you, how, how do you tackle that? And that could be actually one of the issues that you face as an attacker. And um, yeah, sometimes you're hit there or you need, you're stopped by some new technology. You, you might need to get or buy new equipment to communicate with that. And that's just like the beginning. Then you need to figure out how it works. And then, then, then you start doing your threat model and see, okay, so what type of attacks in this scenario could impact the, the system? Another problem is that some of these IoT startup companies are brand new to security. Hey, we only want to make cool toothbrushes, right? In some of these companies, they haven't even hired someone in security. A lot of the products are uh, built by startups. So they're smaller teams, maybe not, you know, they didn't go through a very complex engineering process to pick the technologies that they're using. And they go for kind of like the easiest route or what, libraries are available or what product is already kind of like working. So um, that could be one of the things that affects that we're seeing a lot of firmware that is being reused across different devices or, or the same libraries like all over this across these different projects. One of those new protocols is Low Power Wide Area Network or LP1, which provides long range communications at a low bit rate. As I said, with some of these new protocols, there's simply not enough existing research or testing to show how they'll survive in the real world. Yeah, um, we, we talked about a little bit on the book. Uh, we have some friends in Mexico who, who are developing new hardware to interact with this. So yeah, um, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge uh, and there's always opportunity for that. One of the things we've danced around so far is that IoT means embedded systems. What does that really mean? 
If you've never worked with embedded systems before, well, they are different. Let's compare an embedded system with your basic laptop. A laptop is a device that has a few common processors, like Intel, AMD, that work with a few common operating systems, Linux, Mac, Windows. To exploit these boxes, you don't necessarily need to think at a chip level. Although, Spectre and Meltdown are two attacks that were based on the way Intel chips pre-cache their instructions. My point here is that you can exploit a laptop, a desktop, or a server today without specifically knowing all the circuitry inside it. With IoT, you don't really have that luxury. First of all, each chipset has its own RTOS usually. So we're talking about 20 different chipsets, for example, and maybe 20 or more RTOSs to deal with. Ouch. Okay, there are a lot of similarities, but there are also nuances between them that start to gum things up pretty quickly. So you're going to need a lot of tools. For example, there's a standard, the Joint Test Action Group, better known as JTAG, that is used for verifying designs and testing microcontrollers, or chips, after their manufacture. So how do you go about reverse engineering those microcontrollers? You can start by looking at its JTAG. How do you do that? Well, a few years ago, researcher Joe Grand came up with the JTAGulator, which is available online from his Grand Ideas studio. Then there's also Bus Pirate, which is a specialized tool which talks to different ports, such as the Universal Asynchronous Receiver Transmitter, or UART, which is a physical circuit in the microcontroller. That and a solder iron should be a good start. Yeah, you start, you, you, it's, it's, it becomes like an addiction. I have boxes full of stuff at this point. Uh, but yeah, basically every protocol or every new attack, there, there are some um, must-have tools, kind of like Joe Grant, as you mentioned, the Jtagulator, right? Like, uh, very useful things. Uh, but yeah, it, it varies a lot from technology to technology. So given that you need a Jtagulator, Bus Pirate, and other toys, what would be the bare minimum of the tools for anyone wanting to get started hacking IoT devices? Yeah, uh, it depends, right? If you if you're going to be playing around with LP1, then get you know get this thing to communicate with that or, or a BLE dongle, right? I will start with obviously uh, solder or solder iron. The uh, I, I really like the bus pirate because it communicates with most of the IoT protocols or most of the popular IoT protocols and has this ability with built-in macros to perform automated attacks. And um, the Jetagulator is another one. You also need uh, Oscilloscopio. I don't, I don't know the word for that. <laughs> uh, Oscilloscope. Oscilloscope, yeah, that was close. <laughs> Oscilloscopes are cool because you can see the voltage or current inside the microcontrollers and use that to map things out. Okay, maybe all this chip stuff isn't really your thing. Well, there's also software-defined radio, which takes the place of the custom-designed chips. So it's software that acts like a mixer or an amplifier or a demodulator. So you might have a device that seems to have all of those chips, but really, it's just software. Software-defined radio tools are also a really handy thing when you're trying to, to figure out new radio frequency protocols that may not listen on the, the familiar 802.11 bands. There's also room for Arduino and Raspberry Pi devices. These are Swiss Army knives for researchers because they're generic. They have a lot of options, and you can rapidly create tools on the fly or prototype solutions without resorting to creating custom microcontrollers. 
Mm-hmm. Arduino walks, Raspberry Pis, uh, some of those uh, blue peels or the the new the chips. The what what are they called? Um, I actually have one here. ESP thirty watt thirty twos. Yeah, anything that could emulate these types of protocols um, could be handy. And that's one of the things that we cover on the book. So when you when you get to these exercises, we try to show the practical side. So we will recommend some cheap hardware that they can get for around. Mm-hmm. 10 or five bucks and they get to practice all of the attacks. So given all these tools, where does one start? I guess the, the way to start is just start opening things and see what debugging ports that they have and start interacting with this. And as far, as far as tooling, if you want to start like reading up about it, OWASP started uh, producing new projects around IoT. And some of these involve, for example, the OWASP 10, top 10 risks, which are kind of like known for web, but they did it for IoT. And they're also coming up with uh, documents or methodologies, for example, for firmware analysis. So yeah, they're, they're, they're becoming more specific and they're more practical and it could really help uh, readers and people who want to start attacking IoT uh, get started. So we have some hardware tools. There's still the issue of the various communications protocols and firmware itself. For that, the Open Web Application Security Project, or OWASP, has a GitHub page for something called the IoT GOAT. It's a free framework for researchers to start working with insecure firmware. One of the projects that was uh, kind of like pushed during the when we started working on this book was Aaron Guzman. He is a uh, uh, OWASP contributor, he and Fotis and I started or started um, IoT Goat, which is an open WRT firmware with, with known IoT vulnerabilities. And it's supposed to help developers understand and find these new threats, even or, or attackers to start um, learning how to identify them and attack them. Recently, we got contacted by the board members that they want to clean it soon. So we had some spaces for students to apply and get paid to develop or to work on on this project. And applications are about to start. We haven't really signed up this year yet, but uh, I think uh, it's a good time to do it. So apply if you see us there. Bottom line, IoT hacking presents an opportunity to create new tools. It's literally greenfield as far as tools and research goes. It seems people, they don't take it as an opportunity. Right now, there's a, a, a big gap in tooling and the frameworks and the maybe attack techniques that are documented. And as an industry, we should take this as an opportunity and develop those new tools and share our, new, our findings. Hacking IoT devices is somewhat of the wild, wild west with very few rules. It's literally a green field as far as research and tools go. It's like the early days of computer hacking where you throw a stone and you're likely to hit a security problem. Sometimes the only way to fix those security problems is to keep throwing stones. I want to thank my guests, Bo Woods and Polino Calderon, two of the five authors of Practical IoT Hacking, The Definitive Guide for Attacking the Internet of Things, a new book from No Starch Press, available from Amazon and other fine booksellers. You can find out more about Bo on Twitter at Bo Woods and Polino at Calderpone. And you can follow us at The Hacker Mind, all in Leet Speak. 
Hey, before you go, you can subscribe to The Hacker Mind on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, iHeartRadio, or wherever you find good podcasts. Check us out. The Hacker Mind is brought to you commercial-free every two weeks by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mind, I remain very much woke to the fact that my gadgets will betray me, Robert Famosi. 